All right, we're back. John Duckworth, Alexopoulos here with Robert Lang, incredible, talented artist. And um, the next call to adventure that we were interested in getting into was a, a gallery that you opened here in Charleston. But before we get into that, I'm curious, there's some things that quite a few people who even know you well might not know about you is uh, you were a math prodigy it's perfect 800 on your math SAT when you're in eighth grade, right? Yeah. How did, I mean, at what point did, was that readily apparent? Was that just early on you were just drawn towards math? Yeah, I just, I was like one of those kids that liked it. You know yeah. what I mean? So it was like, you know, I remember my teacher in like fifth grade um, talking about pi and saying like 3.141562, you know what I mean, type thing. And they're saying like, I just want to see, here's, here's pi out to, you know, 100 decimal places, uh, we're going to have a little contest, whoever can memorize it the most. So I was like ecstatic that I'm in this class, you know, I'm in like fifth grade in with the eighth graders, you know, I'm walking up from the, from grade school to a junior high or getting a ride every day. And I'm taking this class with these older kids and I'm just determined to be like, I'm going to beat all of the eighth graders and, and I like it, you know what I mean? So I'm at home and I'm studying and I'm so excited and I go in there and, and I got to about 75 decimal places before making a, a mistake, but still, you know, Easily 75. beat everyone else in the class. What was second was place? Like, yeah, uh, probably like 32 <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Uh, Scott, Scott first and all my mathematical arch nemesis all through high school. Um, <laughs> I just I'll had never, a vision I'll of I'll never the, forget. <laughs> I just had a vision of the Christmas story, <laughs> yeah. that red-haired kid yeah. who's like <laughs> yeah. the arch nemesis. But it was one of those things where like I, I liked math. Um, my father taught me long division when I was, you know, like six or seven years old to give me a little... Uh, heads up a little or a little leg up in, in possibly in math and and I took to it I just I found it as being a point of pride and something I could define myself by and and then I started liking it you know and um, so I was always just a few years ahead and I also liked that point of pride you know I could tell classmates oh you're going to recess I'm walking up to the junior high you know what I mean and these are fifth graders going oh so cool, you know what I mean, type thing. And also, oh man, so geeky, you know right. what I mean, to be mm-hmm. taking a math class. But then when I was going up to the high school and like making friends in high school while all my friends were in junior high, it, it did, it felt like something that was that was overtly cool. And um, were so, you making art at the same time as yeah, well? Yeah, I was always yeah, considered always. like the artistic okay. kid, but it was one of those things where this is, I, I think I was known more as the kid that... that did okay. really well with math. Interesting. And so what was really neat is, you know, by freshman year of high school, there was no math left to take. So I didn't take math in high school, really. You know, I took one semester uh, freshman year um, and that was it. And when it came time to looking at schools, it seemed like a no-brainer, you know, that I had this aptitude, it would take me far. I have a bunch of CFOs in the in the family on my mother's side. And so the mathematic kind of mindset, you know, was maybe part of whatever. And what was amazing is, and I feel like it's never this story, but my parents were like, don't do it. Really? Follow <laughs> art. It's the thing that you love. It's your passion. It's your whatever like that. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I'm going to get an amazing job. I'm going to make all this money. I'm going to da da whatever. And thinking that I was making the, the correct decision for myself. And uh, so I went to Northeastern University on a math scholarship. And um, with about six months in, I was like, what am I doing? And I, I realized that in, unless you get into really advanced theoretical math, there's this ceiling, you know, you're going to end up doing something and maybe it'll be repetitive or it, it just, it, there is some end point feeling towards it. And then when I realized when I looked at art, I, I realized that behind every finished painting, there was a blank canvas with an infinite, 
you know, number of potential. And that all of a sudden became more, all of a sudden started to draw in a different way where I'm like, oh gosh, I could be anything when it comes to being an artist. Mm. So, you know, about a year into Northeastern, I, I, I decided to switch gears. And jumped over to RISD. I actually jumped over to University of New Hampshire. So okay. going to college, my dad was one of these people that said, if you want to go to college, get yourself there. I'm not giving you okay. a penny. Yeah. Um, and if you get yourself there yourself, you'll, you'll find value in it. You'll, you'll appreciate it. Um, if you want to pay for it, it's really expensive. So if you don't want to pay for it, you got to get yourself a scholarship. So I was determined to not go anywhere without scholarship. So I went to Northeastern on a full scholarship. I transferred on a uni- uh, University of New Hampshire on a scholarship because I got into RISD that year, but I didn't get any money. And it's like $30,000 a year. And I was like, oh, that sounds like so much. So I decided I'd go to UNH, work on a portfolio for one semester, uh, maybe up to a year. That's where I met my wife, Megan, um, which is a whole nother, you know, (laughs) I I have a a person in my life that we met and at 19 years old, six months in, we combined bank accounts. We're like, let's just call it a day. We're done. (laughs) We're we're together. Um, and, you know, in the, in the beginning, uh, now it's, we're a little bit more separated because of children uh, and life and what we have to get done in a day. But, you know, for the past better part of 15 years, we've spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with each other. That, um, was, the, uh, that was the end of your math. Yeah. You're like one plus one is <laughs> better. We are, we're, <laughs> yeah, like, we're together. I'm going to put math yeah. down now and make art. Exactly. And uh, so we were like instantaneously connected. And then she went off to London to school and I decided to reapply to RISD and this time got a full scholarship for the rest of my, my time there and decided to move to Providence. Um, but it was neat to have a person, you know, that was the beginning of the birth of having a, another, you know what I mean? Someone to ping off of where it it didn't seem like anything else mattered as long as I had her. And with every other relationship I'd ever had, I had to justify the relationship. This one, it was just, it was a, it was a done deal. I saw 50 years ahead of us and I didn't feel like we had to work on the relationship because I knew she respected me as much as I respected her. And so it became, you know, almost effortless to be in that relationship. And so when I said I was going to RISD, she was all on board. She was going to London. And we didn't really even second guess whether the relationship would survive. And it it did pretty easily. I want to come back to the subject of math for a moment. It's hard to break out of a relationship because that's a beautiful thing to go back to math. But I'm a geek too. Um, John and I were having a conversation with, who is the author that we were watching? Uh, Chuck Klosterman? Chuck Klosterman. Yeah. With sort of the idea that everything we think we know is wrong, right? Yeah. That with, with with time, we go back and the things that we think are true, more often than not, are inaccurate. And he's not talking about small things. He's talking Everything. about large cultural issues. Yeah. Right. You know, gravity at one point, you know. Education. Uh, edu- you know. Y2K, you yeah. know. I mean, um, and so we got into this really interesting conversation about like why is it that we humanity have to be right? Like, why can't we accept that we don't know, right? Yeah. And that got into a conversation about math and why I love math because there's clarity in it. Um, And then we started to say, well, couldn't in the future two plus two not equal four? I'd be interested in your thought on that. I think definitely. Because I, I think all of us should hold that mindset that we don't 
No, because it's it's silly to think that at any point in our life, in hindsight, we realize the, the falter of our ways before this day. You know what I mean? In every single aspect. So I feel like it's one of those things where like the healthiest, you know, point of view to take is that we're we're in the dark. And I'm like, and when you see uh, brilliant men of, of any, you know, um, occupation, a lot of them, well, you know, I, I remember watching the, the Daily Show one day, this John Stewart and interviewing this guy who was, you know, Obama had given him the, the task of, you know, mapping the human brain onto like CD, you know what I mean, onto a drive type thing. And, you know, and, and what he was trying to say was like, you realize we haven't even scratched the surface on any of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like the, the magic and the mystery of the human mind is so bafflingly powerful on such a low voltage of energy and the computer equivalent of, of a brain, I can't remember what he said, he's like, it would take a small nuclear reactor, a river running through it, and da-da-da, to equivalent what the human brain does on 7 watts or 11 watts or whatever. And he's like, you know, the fact that that is true means that we don't know. And I feel like every person I've ever known that's profound in any way holds that, that ideology. And, and math is no different because there's always something new that's being revealed, no matter how concrete the language is something is going to show us that, you know, there was this undercurrent um, that we didn't know about always. I, I feel like everything in life is some unfolding onion, you know what I mean, that doesn't have a, a destination. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like most people would agree looking in hindsight and then in the moment would still say, oh, but I'm, but I'm right. I, I'm right now. <laughs> yeah. I can look back and see yeah. where I was wrong in the past, but I got it figured out right now. It's short-term memory is amazing. <laughs> But that we're, I love the idea that, that you mentioned that we're always in the dark. Yeah. And to me, this is, a, this, this is a concept to me that's not troubling. It's actually, for me, oh, it's, it's, fantastic. A, it's, a, it's a fantastic feeling. Yeah. It feels like it should feel, which is feeling, I mean, coming back to your favorite book, Ishmael, yeah. that you mentioned, there's a sense that when you, when you come to this position of not having the weight of being the epicenter of the universe placed on your shoulder, yeah. that it, it, even Bayes, when I'm reading this to him, when it came to that moment, he was like, oh, that's really relieving. Yeah, it really is though. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, we're not gonna get to the end point. We're not gonna figure it out. Like it's, it's too grand and beautiful, a synchronistic like mystery out there. And that's nice to just ride the wave and let it go where it, you know, it's supposed to go. I've always loved it, kind of seeing it as like, we're always on the precipice of an epiphany, mm-hmm. you know, like, so I always feel like at some point, something amazing is, is about to happen all the time. And leaving that room for that to happen means that, you know, that again, I don't know, because again, something's going to happen that's going to open my eyes a little wider. And that's there's something that, really um, healthy. That Brian Tracy quote that uh, you and Kevin like so much. I'm an inverse paranoid. Right. right. <laughs> I firmly believe that the entire universe is out to do me good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I love that as That's like a, as an approach, yeah. like to sitting down at a meeting with somebody and like, man, what's Rob going to do right now? Because it, <laughs> yeah. it is going to be awesome. Yeah. Like just that. And that's what that, that tagline for the Awake show that I did, proceeding with curious anticipation. There's a sense that, that the wonder is, uh, is held in that moment. Like, wow. You know, and, and that's, I think the part that you talk about wanting to be able to light up like children light up. Yeah. That, and, and I feel like you have that because you're so conscious and aware of that being something that's really magical. Well, and I think that goes to being like the, the vulnerable side of ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Like when we get out of our head and we just are who we are, nobody 
really judges you for that. And you, you tend to be so much freer when you just act as you act. You know, I used to, I give a toast at the end of every opening night. We've now done like 120 exhibits in, in 13 wow. years. It was crazy. When I first did toast, I was like, I want to sound as eloquent and as upstanding and as powerful so that everyone thinks this is the guy who's, you know, part of the progressive art movement in Charleston, whatever. And now I pretty much cry at every toast <laughs> because I just say whatever comes to my mind. And then when I start thinking about my artists and how much I care for them and, and the work that they've put forth or what they're trying to transcribe in their work, I tend to get emotional every time. So like everyone knows when I go to give a toast, you're like, here, he's about to cry again. But what a beautiful Afterwards, thing. people always come up and say, you know, that's really moving. Or I see other people crying or whatever like that. And I'm, I realize I'm like, I'm just going to be open with the fact that I am a bit of a mushy human being. You know what and I mean? I'll tell and like, you, I mean, in, in, especially for, uh, uh, for a male figure in today's culture, crying's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and in a really great way. I mean, it's, it's really healthy and it's not something that is... Uh, uh, it's not something that male, most male people do easily. And you it feel, that, you feel that. that tide shifting, though. You feel this, this, this time in our, our ways where, you know, I feel like I, I would have these, like, interns come to the gallery and they'd be, like, so open to talk about, you know, energy. And, and mm. you know, a kid's bringing up, oh, I'm, I'm really into Reiki right now. And I'm like, I just don't feel like this was the conversation that was going to happen 10 years ago. But now I have this 17-year-old or 22-year-old who's like into energy work and all open and, and you just feel their chest and their heart kind of wide open. And again, it's this, it's this strong male looking figure standing in front of me and yet he's, he's soft and vulnerable and not, he's unashamed of it. And I'm, you know, I could hope for nothing more for my own children's you know, path ahead that they are allowed to be who they wish to be. You know, well, I think it's a good are. thing that the that the the feminine and the yeah. female voice is getting a bit stronger right now. It's like a, that's another tidal wave that yeah. you know. I had yeah. this whole feeling that you know Trump in general was just this was just going to help for this a pendulum. Yeah. yeah, and and I'm like, women will finally take over the world because we'll realize like he is the epitome of all the darkness that is that that privileged, not just white, but privileged male patriarchal you know mindset. And uh, I love, you know, nine of our friends went to the Women's March and my three-year-old daughter and, and Brendan and, and Curry's three-year-old daughter wore sashes around Charleston that day that says, why they march. And the two girls just had these like little proud chests just nice. walking around. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Start them early. Yeah. Start them early. Um, come back to Charleston. Uh, you're up north. You're in school. You meet the love of your life. You know it. Um how do you get to Charleston? So I graduated, from, when I was graduating from RISD, I realized, you know, I spent a lot of time in Boston, Providence. We all went to New York all the time. And I realized that 10,000 painters a year moved to New York City. I read this, you know, statistic and I was like, oh my goodness. It's not like the galleries are empty looking for artists. They're all pond. chock full. of, yeah. And so there's so much excitement there. You know, it'll always be Mecca for the art world in, in, in many regards. And I love going to New York, but it was one of those things where I watched friends go there and it seemed to not be about the merit of the work as much as the, the system that you're, you're playing in. And, you know, I, I remember still going to Mary Boone's gallery where a friend Kevin Zucker was having a show and here I am, I'm living and breathing art and it's, it's everything for me. And I walk in this gallery and I felt sized up and kind of disregarded because I didn't fit the, 
the profile. And that drove me crazy because I've always seen art as like a, it's like music. It's democratic. It belongs to people. It's meant to be experienced and, and it's subjective. So there's no right or wrong or hierarchy to it. It's just meant to be a part of, of who we are. And we all allow ourselves music, but so many people don't allow themselves access to art because they think they, it's, they're not bourgeois enough or, or, or educated enough. And so we decided, let's just go look for a different art market where we could see ourselves being artists for 50 years. And so we drove down the East Coast. We had a friend who was living here. And uh, it didn't take long hmm. to see a city that kind of lived off of culture. You know what I mean? And it seemed like there was a handshake in the air. And I was like, you know, at first coming from the North, I was like, these people are fake. <laughs> and I don't know, nobody's this, you know, happy and welcoming. And there's nobody moves at this pace. Like everyone's really slow and easy going down here. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. The driving <laughs> tells the driving off. tells me everything, you know, like they're not out to get each other. There's like camaraderie. It's hilarious, I don't man. like it. I remember when yeah. I moved out from California, I, it took me a little while to realize that people actually used their horns here to say yeah. hi yeah Hello. i was like i was like people are honking i'm like fuck you I'm like, oh 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 hi you're waving damn i'm an asshole like, wow that really happened like more than once you know and there's and it once we realized that it was genuine that this was actually the way the city you know uh, moved and, and acted it was it was a done deal we we're like this is a place and we looked around and there was so much cool art happening but it still seemed to be again on this this birth of a progressive movement. You, you know, I felt like Redux and the Halsey were doing cool things and this sprinkling of artists that had this really neat effect, but it was still dominated by this, this regional work that was quality, but it was very regional, but it seemed like it had all the pieces to become a, a more of a renaissance you know, city for the visual arts. And um, so we just wanted to be a part of it as, as artists. So I went around and applied to every single gallery and every single one said no. And most said that, you know, I, this kind of art won't survive in Charleston. And then a gallery gave me um, uh, Chuck Wolf from Charles II Gallery, which is where my gallery is, is today, uh, gave me like six feet on the wall. Um, I think out of more pity and, and friendship than anything else. And I sold about 11 paintings one month after about five months of selling no paintings. So being like, this is not going to work out. And then I sold 11 paintings. Um, had just a tiny, tiny little bit of money working retail, both Megan and I, and we walked by a space on East Bay Street, uh, 151 East Bay on the corner of Unity Alley where McCready's is, and it was under renovation. And the two of us were 23, and we went, oh, I can't help but look <laughs> in there and see a renovation and an idea and this and that, whatever. And we realized we didn't have anything, so there was nothing to lose, really. So we're like, let's make this happen. So we're like, oh, we're going to rent this gallery. So we go to the landlord and we're like, we're going to rent this gallery. And he's like, I'm not going to rent this gallery to two 23-year-olds <laughs> with that work. I worked at American Eagle and Megan worked at Charleston Lighting. And like we had nothing to speak for, our, you know, like a, an ability. So we said, well, it looks like you're putting in fluorescent lighting and you're putting in this carpeted floor. I'll put in rosewood floors, MR16s. We'll make it beautiful. And then if we can't pay the second month rent, you can kick us out. And he said, basically because we convinced him enough, uh, all right, you know, like I'll, I'll let you try. And so we asked our dads to come and they helped put down the floors and moms painted walls and brothers and sisters put in lights. And, and we crossed our fingers and we found a couple artists that we thought would be, you know, healthy for the, the, the city. And we opened the doors just needing to sell a painting, but not wanting to tell anybody that we need to sell a painting. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we sold... 
a good amount of paintings on opening night, and somehow the the snowball has never stopped kind of rolling forward ever since. And slowly, I think one of the neatest things is we realized when we first opened, we were trying to open a commercial art gallery, and we were afraid of running it based on the way we saw the world. And then we slowly just shifted, and we started saying, I'm going to represent artists on character first, artwork second, so I can believe in these human beings behind the work. And I'm going to treat every single person who walks in the door at the same level of, you know, kind of care. We give a sketchbook to every kid that walks in the door and, and, and kind of employ the, this idea of, like, let's, let's make everyone's day better when they come in and try to propel their own sense of creativity and make them realize that they, are too, are imaginative and, and creative. And uh, it still blows my mind that it's... 13 it's, years, it's, right? It's 13 years, 100 yeah. and something shows, and now it's... It's not a 700-square-foot space. It's 6,000-square-foot space. We have an artisan residency, a two-bedroom apartment that we've now brought, like, 82 artists to come stay in from all over the world. And we carried the Venue Hotel, which is about 60,000 linear feet of space, where the hotel owners, John and Lisa, gave us kind of 100% carte blanche to do anything with this brand-new art hotel. And our idea was to, again, bring, like, levity and and buoyancy in in a style of work that was usually time-orientated, but things that felt good and bring world-renowned talent to help them co-mingle with Charleston's talent and show where Charleston might be heading as a, you know, a progressive art scene. It's, um, it's a beautiful thing. So many of us um, tend to separate our personal lives from our thinking about what our work life might be, right? And there's sort of these two personas. Um, I personally have gone through the same sort of metamorphosis where I'm like, no, my my person needs to be my work yeah fully um and we use that authenticity vulnerability those things when you get more comfortable with those terms you feel more open to this is who i am and i want to say that as loud as i can in a soft way right right but i i want to be i want to be myself fully out in the world wherever that is um I'm curious as I th- hear about y- your adventures um, and trauma being the central part of your first. Um, I don't hear fear anywhere in your vocabulary. I'm just wondering how you describe your relationship to that word. There's a certain, so in opening the gallery specifically, there's this thing that happened where, you know, I, I think Meg and I are this great team. You have like a pr- pragmatic human being who's, who thinks clearly in my wife. And then you have this kind of optimistic dreamer who never thinks anything will ever go wrong. And I'll just, you know, balls to the wall, jump off the deep end at all times. And I just believe that it will fall into place. And it doesn't always fall into place, but I feel like the combination allows for some recipe where things do tend to fall into place because Megan makes sure that the ship moves forward and she knows when we need to, you know, think about things or tighten in a little bit or just, you know, like a a practical way of uh, uh, assuming these ideas. And um, so one thing that was really neat about the gallery is, you know, together as a team, we were a little bit tentative maybe, but I was, you know, wholeheartedly just believed that if we did it and we worked as hard as we could. So we stayed open 70 to 80 hours a week in those, those first two years. I mean, you could come by at 11.30 p.m. on a Friday and the gallery would be open because you're like, well, I mean, we do have to pay the rent and things like that, so we might as well stay open as many hours as possible to make this happen. But there was never a fear that it would fall apart because there. I always thought that if we just worked harder, 
it would come into fruition. And I think, you know, my father is kind of that type of human being. He's one of these people that, you know, it's, it's effort first. And if you put that effort forward, you know, you're going to see results and you can't just sit back. You, if, if there's something you want, just go get it and get it with every, you know, all the vigor you have in your spirit. How do you, um, when you're looking at sort of building more people in your culture, in your, uh, in your company, however yeah. you want to speak to it, your family, I would say, yeah. um, you know, a resume says one thing, but I, I don't get the sense that you, uh, look, uh, with great care and attention at a resume. Like uh, my sense is that the resume yeah. is a conversation that you have where you're trying to pull out these things that are the ingredients that you value, effort, determination, persistence. Yeah, and and also just, again, people who are, they're just, they're real in front of you. And I'm like, you know, when we were hiring our gallery director, Curry, she was working at um, East Bay Meeting House, which is a coffee shop on East Bay Street. And she was the, the, the coffee barista and the bartender at night. And here we are, we finally decided to put a call for entry out for a, a new position. And we're getting people that are like, you know, I graduated from Columbia's um, graduate program in contemporary art theory. And I'm reading these resumes and I'm talking to people. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, cool. And, I'm, and then at the end of the day, I'm like, I think we should try to poach <laughs> the barista, the, the barista Curry, because she is sunshine in a human being. And like, when I talk to her, when you talk to her, I feel better at the end of the day. And I'm like, that's what we're trying to do here. And I'm like, Art is so subjective that I don't want to be a gallery that educates people why they should fall in love with something. Like your gut's going to tell you everything. If you fall in love with a piece, it's it's for your own reasons. And it usually, it just resonates with you. And my job is to, you know, aid you along that way, hopefully make the process easy. If it's, you know, we try to make it, especially on the financial side, we'll let people break up paintings up into a couple years if they need to, because if they want to, to take something home and fall in love with it, and that's the whole purpose. And, and that's who I think the artist wished the painting would go to anyway. So we try to take yeah. all of the, you know, the, we'll have people walk in that have the the black Amex and the, this bourgeois quality and they want the, the whole, you know, carpet to be rolled out for them. And if they're a little bit of a douche in that personality, we're not going to roll out any red carpet for you because you're a human being, I'm a human being, and you're treating me with a little bit of disrespect as if I'm subservient to you. And yet a seven-year-old walks in the door and he's a big Nathan Durfee fan already and whatever. And we will, we will leave bend the computer and too. we will sit down with him and we will spend half an hour talking with him because, you know, he's being, he's being awesome in this moment and he deserves the attention type thing. So I remember at uh, my studio when, uh, on John's Island when Bayes was like, I think he might've been four. And there was a couple who fit the bill you just described coming on a visit from Kiowa to my studio black car, tinted windows, and, and all dressed in black. Uh, it's pretty rare that this happens, uh, uh, but Bayes was with me. He's always been particular, uh, of course, partial to my time. This was on a weekend, so he was already a little bit bummed about having to, you know, clients are coming, you know, and <laughs> dad's going to be preoccupied for a little while. So the whole time they were in the studio, he was walking around from room to room, turning the lights off. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, this has never happened before. <laughs> but he just like, it, nothing I could tell him would stop him. He just did not like these people and wanted them out and he wanted to piss them off. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand it. I mean, like, they, again, those kids, they, right. they know. I mean, they, know. they, they read yeah. people There's no so filter there. well. You can't hide who you are to a child. Yeah. Like, yeah. they'll decide. And two weeks later, somebody comes through the studio 
who clearly he loved. Yeah. And I had talked to him about, you know, hey, it's kind of important when people come, if I'm selling artwork, this is kind of how the whole wheel spins, man. You know, this is how you eat. We pay the rent, all this stuff, mortgage. And so a couple minutes in, I introduced them to Bayes and then he, he walks out of the studio. And I'm like, oh, cool, all right. He just decided to bag it and go play outside for a bit. Well, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, he comes back in with a handful of fresh-picked camellias for the clients. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you are the best, man. Holy if those cow. two examples don't tell you everything right? about how we should behave when it comes to interacting with our clients, I'm like, that, that's yeah. it right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a quote here I wanted to read, your favorite quote, because yeah. it relates directly to this conversation. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read it right now, and then we can talk about it a minute. But you said you're not sure who, where it came from, um, and I believe it's been said in a few different ways, but I like this version. Our imagination should be nurtured with the utmost care, for it is the tool of liberation from the bonds which tie down this existence. We can do anything we, we can imagine, become anything we are able to visualize, for the images we create in our minds will inevitably lead us to the world which affects their realization. Yeah, I mean, as a parent, that's my credo. My, my, my entire philosophy is to feed these children's imagination because I, I do feel like even as an adult, if I can look over at the table over there and, and, and picture a you know, 12-inch tall Siberian tiger sitting on the, on the tabletop, my day is filled with a little bit more light because I'm allowing myself to still see the world through that lens. And I realize their whole day is filled that way. And mm. slowly our mother culture will probably pull that out of them. So my job is to keep them feeling as if, you know, confident in the fact that your imagination is going to bring upon new ideas all the time. And those new ideas are going to be the thing that sends you down your your path that that feels right. So it really is, I mean, if if I had a philosophy as a parent, it's it's to to feed their imagination. Nurture imagination. I mean, with relating to the arts, we talk about this quite a bit. It's one of those things that's so curious is that imagination has been relegated to the purview of the artist. Yeah. And yet when I look around, you know, life as creative process is essentially the way I like to view the lens of, of, of my own personal growth and evolution. And that's not an artistic, that's not just limited to being an artist. Everybody that's is a participating. That's a human yeah. thing, right? And yeah. it's 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 sad in a lot of ways that it gets stripped away. I mean, I, I hear people will say all the time when I tell them that I'm an artist is, ah, oh, yeah, I don't, I'm not creative at all. And then I start talking to them a little bit. What is it that you do? And, and, and I have to remind them, every single person, do you realize that that's creative process, what you're doing? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, Emptying the dishwasher can be creative. <laughs> if you have Stevie Wonder on and you're... The kids are pulling out plates and you're all putting it away and this and that, whatever, and you're dancing around the kitchen. I'm like, that. that's a very different process than the chore and the yeah. headache and the burden of emptying the dishwasher because once again, it's full. And it's like, I feel like if you carry that with you, then, you know, life opens up a little bit more and mm-hmm. becomes a, a little bit easier and brighter. There's a, there's a guy, Napoleon Hill, I don't know if you've ever heard of him from the 50s, who wrote a quote that's very similar. He's, he just says, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Oh, I like that. And he he's a, wrote a book uh, called Think and Grow Rich, yeah. which is pretty cool. It's not just about money. Yeah. But. No, but I, do, I really do like that. And I, I feel like I actually meet a lot of parents that are kind of thinking of the other side, where they're like, I want to get them right off the bat away from 
the fantastic and the, mm. the imaginative. And get him, you know, you know, kind of employed as a human right off the bat with, you know, more concrete thinking. Thinking and, about test scores and yeah, future and jobs. Kind of just, and, you know, give him a leg up in the world. And mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, I just, I feel like if, you, if you're holding your, if you believe in yourself as a creative, you never really feel held back because there's always going to be multiple avenues in front of you because you can conceive and imagine new things happening mm. in front of you. So I feel like it's one of those situations where there's, I don't think there's anything healthier. There's not a downside. Yeah. And I'm like, if anything, it just enriches. I, I love, you know, I'll paint these paintings of, you know, a, uh, like a chair with a, a 10 inch tall lion on it. And I love when people come in and they say, I had no idea that there were are there really pygmy lions? And you're like, first of all, we would all know if there were pygmy lions. That is not a secret that would be able to be kept back. But I love the fact that they can't even, you know, see it with a fanciful eye. They're almost seeing it as concrete right off the bat. Where did you find that little lion? Yeah. And I love bringing up with people too that like, you know, when they say that I'm not creative is, um, you know, I, I never thought I could cook because I just never did because my mom was, you know, super mom and she cooked everything for us at all times. So I never really touched that. And then I, you know, I realized if I, if I just started one day, it's, it's more of a permission system. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? If I give myself permission to be creative or to be a chef or a cook or whatever, you know, if I cook 10 meals, I'll be okay. If I cook a hundred, I'll be better. If I cook a thousand, I might know what I'm doing. If I cook 10,000 meals, I don't care where I started. I will be awesome. Heck yeah. Because there's no way around it. And I feel like art is the same thing. You know, every person is creative. It's just giving yourself permission to head down a path and realizing that it'll probably be time above all else that that brings you further along that path. That's yeah. a beautiful description. Yeah, definitely. Let, let's, uh, let's, speaking of beautiful, um, <clears throat> can you tee up the next tune? I think Manchester by, uh, yeah, so, by Kishibashi. Yeah, so Kishibashi is one of these artists that I don't know how, it's like one of those recommendations of a recommendation of a recommendation that got me to this this artist. And, you know, his music is one of those things where I'm like, if, if I can make a painting that feels the way this song sounds, that's it. Like, that's my, that's my, Dropping shang, the mic. That's my <laughs> Shangri-La. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out. Because there's something about, you know, uh, music is so beautiful for that reason. You know, sound can kind of achieve these things inside your, your physical reality that are, that are so big and bright. And, and what there's like a crescendo in this, in this song that just goes so enormous. And I'm like, I feel so alive when I hear it. And if I'm listening to it in headphones or in the car or whatever, I'm like, oh, that's it. You know what I mean? Like I went from my normal day where I was just going through routines to this, this thing where I just felt like I could tackle the world. So it's just one of those songs where every little piece of, of the music side of it is just, it resonates inside. Awesome. Let's hear it. Manchester by Kishibashi. I couldn't even spell on the table 
think I left it on the table I found the last page in the sky Cold and sweet like an apple I found you and now the story has its proper end It's alive in a long time All the streets are warm today Stay off of the new day. 